All right. Psalm or Proverbs 17 verses 7 through 28. A catalog of fools. So, as we look at this this chapter provides for us a setup where it's talking about the fool. It's focused upon the fool. Chapter 18 focuses on the wise man and wise speech. Chapter 17 focuses on certain types of fool. And we end the beginning uh, of the chapter, which we talked last time, we went through it, and it was basically um, chapter 16, most of chapter 16 and the beginning of 17 were this uh, elongated section um, that we, we looked at, and the end of it talked about the crown of gray hair for those who are in righteousness in their old age. And so what we'll be considering is this section on the fool, on the catalog of the types of fools, and we need to think about it in terms of its context. So I'll, at the end, get back to that and think about it. But let's, let's examine the text now. So we'll read, please stand for God's word. Chapter 17, verses 7 to 28. Excellent speech is not becoming to a fool, much less lying lips to a prince. A present is a precious stone in the eyes of its possessor. Wherever he turns, he prospers. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. Rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. An evil man seeks only rebellion, therefore a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Whoever rewards evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just Both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Why is there in the hand of a fool the purchase price of wisdom, since he has no heart for it? A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A man devoid of understanding shakes hands in a pledge and becomes surety for his friend. He who loves transgression loves strife. And he who exalts his gate seeks destruction. He who has a deceitful heart finds no good. And he who has a perverse tongue falls into evil. He who begets a a scoffer does so to his sorrow. And the father of a fool has no joy. A merry heart does good like medicine. But a broken spirit dries the bones. A wicked man accepts a bribe behind the back to pervert the ways of justice. Wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Also, to punish the righteous is not good, nor to strike princes for their uprightness. He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he's considered perceptive. You may be seated. All right, so starting at verse 7. So the whole section, again, chapter 7, Chapter 17, verses 7 to 28, the catalog of types of foolishness. You see lots of discussion here of foolishness. And so, if I had more time, I'd have given you more labels, but at least for the first section, I tried to give you labels to think about the types of fool that we're introduced to. Hopefully that will make it easier to see, to prevent your own action, and easier to see it when you run into it in the world. So these three verses. The first one, excellent speech is not becoming to a fool much less lying lips to a prince. This is a bridge that connects to the crown of, of old age that we dealt with in the last chapter. And what we had were considerations of things that would uh, be becoming to the wise, and so the crowning of the end of the life of the wise. And now there is this consideration of the excellence of speech coming to the fool. And 
when you have a fool that has excellent speech, what you essentially have is a beautifier of evil. Okay, if you can speak excellently, but you speak evil things, you're a beautifier of evil. Now, we have this in spades in our culture. The ability to make music, the ability to make movies, the ability to make video games, all of the high art that exists. And I say high art on purpose. High art is the type of art that requires the pulling together of significant capital to be able to make things in our time. And so video games and movies and music and television shows, these are the high art of our age. They are the art that is the manifestation of the great expense of money and capital of labor that we see enormous amounts of work. When you look at modern music, stuff that's very popular, you find that it has multiple producers. You find that it has more man hours going into its construction than you have in the songs of old. And so the amount of money that goes into these things is enormous. The high art of our time is made up of fools who beautify evil. The beautifier of evil is disgusting. Excellent speech is not becoming to a fool. Highly produced music is not becoming to foolish messages. Highly produced video is not becoming of stories that aggrandize wickedness. Highly produced video game computer-generated graphics are unbecoming of the wickedness that is manifest in the storylines and encouraged activities of these games. There is a separation of morality or a plain putting forward of wickedness as though it were good in much of the excellent creation of our time. People talk about how Christian art is bad. That's also unbecoming. Christian art ought to be excellent. Christian art ought to be the best art. The speech of the Christian ought to be superb. And so the first type of fool is the beautifier of evil. And I want your eyes to be open to the beautifier of evil as a great enemy who is to be overcome. The wise ought to speak with eloquence. It is better to speak wisdom unadorned than to have no wisdom to speak. But better still is to speak wisdom skillfully and with beauty. Let the wise learn all skills of art to show forth the glories of the truth in ordinary life. Let them learn excellence of speech that they may preach in the worship of God with power. We're told by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 that he did not come with the wisdom of men and he did not come with excellence of speech. His point there was this. We ought not to be persuaded by the philosophies that come from men's hearts and we ought not to be persuaded by the beautiful speech of men in great swelling words or in waxing eloquent. But there is a beauty that comes in the plain, clear, concise, and organized proclamation of the truth. There is a pleasantness to the orderliness of truth, to the systematics of truth. There is a beauty to the presentation of things in a well-ordered way. And as a mind is reconstructed, edified, renewed after the image of Christ. There is a beauty in the inward man. And so the words of beauty have the power of constructing the soul into a glorious edifice where the Holy Spirit of God dwells. And there is no glory that is more beautiful than the glory of God. And so the dwelling place of the eternal God is where the eternal truth is. And so the eternal truth unadorned is more beautiful than the excellencies of human speech. And there ought to be an excellence in the proclamation of the truth. The second type of fool, much less lying lips to a prince. The excellent speech is not becoming to a fool, much less lying lips to a prince. Excellence is unfitting, unbecoming of a fool when he speaks. And even more so, lying is unbecoming to princes. Our politicians have made it so that saying lying politician sounds like a redundancy. You knew the joke before I said it. You expected it. Because it's so common. Republicans and Democrats, how do you know when they're lying? Is their mouth moving? 
and you're not even offended, even though most of you think Republicans are better than Democrats, you all do, because you know it's true. Republicans abandon positions when it is convenient. How many people that are in office now once pledged to defend the sacredness of marriage? Oh, how the mighty have fallen. And their pledges have no weight. The retreating away from things by lying politicians. Lying is not fitting for a person of high station or honor. Lying is an act of injustice and sows the seeds of injustice that make a throne self-destruct. Crowns are shattered by injustice. Rule is established by justice. Truth-telling is fitting to a person of high honor. And truth-telling is how justice is established. It is not fitting for princes to lie. Now, that problem of the lying politician makes it so that we look around and we feel as though it is a hopeless endeavor to see reform in the political realm. And frankly, when we look at preachers, in large churches, preachers are largely lying politicians. The lying politician role of church officers often manifests itself in the form of avoiding having conflict become public and avoiding having disputes become public. Transparency is one of the great weapons against lying and transparency in power is absolutely necessary for public officers to not simply become mouthpieces of falsehood. There is no greater danger for a republic or for a presbytery than secrecy because secrecy kills the truth and secrecy kills right worship and secrecy kills right government and it makes the officers into lying politicians. The reason is because of the sense of conflicted loyalties. The ruling class, when it has secrecy, begins to feel different from those who are under authority. Men are weak. I am weak. We are weak. And that weakness makes it so that we need publicity of public matters so those things can be debated in the public. And if something is hard to say, then it still has to be said. And it's much easier to not say what needs to be said when you can say it in some places but then not in others. You just don't say it in the places where you feel like you don't have to. So you have the secret meeting and you say what needs to be said. And then you have the public meeting and you don't say what needs to be said. This is what happens in Congress with its secret meetings. This is what happens in the executive branch with its secret meetings. This is what happens in Presbyterian churches with their executive sessions. The temptation to lie is enormous. The temptation to lie is enormous. And so, it is the practice of the Bible and the practice historically of Presbyterians to make sure that whenever you send anybody on a public matter of business, you send two or three witnesses so that when the people come back, they have to say what happened accurately. In one great matter, the Presbyterian church in Scotland sent a single man, not two men, to go deal with a public matter. And that matter was in the consideration of the restoration of a king into the United Island of Britain. They sent a man to deal with the matter, and the man did not do what his commission was, and instead negotiated in terms that were contrary to what the presbytery had established. And had they sent two or three witnesses the man's fortitude would likely have held as others were with him, as opposed to him negotiating by himself, representing the, the Presbyterians there. So what we have is a realization that, in general, you look at the Bible, it always teaches the sending of two or three witnesses, and when you send one man to do what two or three ought to do, that man will tend to fail. The third type of fool 
Verse 8. A present is pr- a precious stone, and really you could translate that a magic stone, in the eyes of its possessor. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Right, this is the horse trading lobbyist. The horse trading lobbyist. If you think you can get people to do what you want all the time by trading things, by bribing things, by giving people things, even in outcomes of matters of justice, then you are acting like a bribe is a magic stone that can get you whatever you want. This is a type of fool, the horse trading lobbyist. One of the reasons that big businesses love to see regulation is because they think that they can make the trades to get the regulations to be whatever they want. And they can push out competition and prevent new entrants from entering the market by making the regulations and rules into something that makes it hard for competitors and helps to preserve their market dominance. This ends in fascism. It ends in the government taking what that business thought it was protecting. When you get governments accustomed to telling people what they can do with their private property, it doesn't tend to stop where you want it to. The beautifier of evil, the lying politician, the horse trading lobbyist. These sound like the people who govern our society. The institutions of cultural creation, the political power, and the business owners, and the people who represent them. Does that not manifest curse in our society? Now these people are fools, which means they are likely to be overcome by the wise. The beautifiers of evil think that what they are beautifying is excellent. The lying politician thinks that what he's doing is advancing the ultimate cause of truth, his truth, namely his career. And the truth is, his career is what matters. The horse trading lobbyist believes in the almighty dollar, which is a false god, and will disappoint. These three are giants that must be defeated in our land. And so what we have to do is to be careful to not beautify evil ourselves and to seek to beautify what is good. You want to overcome the beautifier of evil? Beautify what is good. Do it well. You women who have a tendency to think of your work as not being as important as it is, the home is a glorious place where children's souls are formed. The children will remember better what you do than anything else that happens. And so the building, the constructing of homes, the building and the constructing of a place for hospitality where more teaching and influence occurs than typically occurs in a pulpit. The preparing of a home and the managing of an estate and the enabling of a man to be able to display his competence for public office. You women are called to the task of beautifying what is good. And you have the power to shut the mouths of the obstreperous in a way that men do not. Preachers are called to shut the mouths of the opposers. And by the beauty of our women, there is a shutting of the mouths of our opponents. Men, when you enter into public service, be careful to speak the truth and to not lie. When you enter into public office, be careful to say the truths that are needful, even when they are hard. Grow accustomed to explaining and defending the hard places. Grow accustomed to saying the things that most people don't want to hear. And have people around you who want to hear the things that are true, that other people don't want to hear. So that as you accustom yourself to saying them, and you accustom them to expecting you to say it, the result is that when you don't, the people that you're around who have the shared views that you have will view themselves as being betrayed when you don't say what needs to be said. Create peer pressure for yourself to have to say the truth. As far as the horse trading goes, remember the difference between paying for justice and paying for things that can be traded. 
it's entirely reasonable to trade things except when we're dealing with a matter of justice or truth. You can make trades, that's ordinary business, but being careful to not accept the rewards of the enemy for doing what is evil. One of the easiest, one of the easiest hidden things to fall into is to accept the bribes of the devil that are not seen by anybody else. And so one of the things we have to be careful about is how we spend our time by ourselves. Are we doing useful things or do we squander our time? And the idea of the careful consideration of pleasures and in particular resisting lust. One of the easiest bribes to give to a man to corrupt his exercise of power is a sexual bribe. Pornography is the cheap sexual bribe of our age to make godly men weak. And so we must avoid sexual sin. We must avoid it. And if you do not avoid it, if you do not resist it, it will manifest itself in worse ways that will make it so that when you have power, that there are offers of worst kinds. And it will make it so that you are corrupted. How many conservative, zealous politicians do you think made it to Washington and then were bribed with sexual bribes and now they are too dirty to do the things that they promised to do? Some of them accept money. But the types of bribes that the devil has to offer are more than money. So there are things to be afraid of. The thing to be afraid of is becoming a beautifier of evil a lying politician, or a horse-trading lobbyist. We need to be ready to say no to the bribes of the devil of every kind. So the contrast, all of a sudden here, in the middle of this, in the middle of this introductory bridge section, we have at verse 9, the wise that's put forward. What I'm calling the honor guard. He who covers a transgression seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates friends. This is the exposer of shame. There's the honor guard and the exposer of shame. The shame exposer. These two are contrasted. Which type do you want as a friend? The one who is careful to guard your honor when you fall? Or the one who is quick to expose you when you fall? The one who exposes shame is the one that destroys the bonds of relationships and makes it so that people can't trust each other and it makes it so we feel like we can't confess our sins to each other so that we can't overcome beautifying evil, lying for the, good, for the approval of others, or taking bribes to do wickedness. If we are careful to guard each other's honor while spurring each other on to righteousness, if we cover each other's transgressions with love rather than repeating matters for the purpose of separating friends and seeking our own advantage, then we can foster a place where we can overcome sin and crush our enemies. Loyalty depends upon the ability to rely upon each other, to not expose each other's shame unnecessarily. Now, the scriptures are wiser than men, and they know how to balance things. So immediately after encouraging us to not expose each other's shame, he talks about rebuke and blows. Because it's not always the case that everything should just be left in the darkness. There's a time when we have to expose each other's shame. But the question is, what is the default? Is the default to cover? And then do you say, is this necessary to expose? That's the order that we need to operate in. And so we need to understand when it's necessary to expose. Because you know what can happen? In evangelical culture, you can end up with the covering up of things like sexual sins that are crimes. You can end up with the covering of things that ought not to be covered. You can have the innocent not be protected by a desire to not expose. And so the Bible gives us the perfect categories. It gives to us crimes versus sins. And it shows us that we must expose crime. And we have the option of exposing sin that's not crime when the other person won't repent and make it right. 
And so defining these things is important, which is why the law of God and all of its detail are so important for us to understand how to rightly handle things. So 17 verses 10 to 15, they say, Rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows and a fool. An evil man seeks only rebellion. Therefore, a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Whoever rewards evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. So now, this section, this is about how to handle fools and God's punishment for fools. So this is A, B, A, B, A, B. That's the structure of it. A is how to deal with a fool. B is how God deals with the fool. And that's the structure throughout this. So there's six pieces. The three sections of A are each followed by a section B. So, A, the first A, is verse 10. Rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. So this is, how do you deal with the fool? Okay, well, we have to think here about the limits of overlooking, right? Because rebuking is a type of exposing. And when somebody has the blows of a rod, there's been some sort of a trial that's occurred if it's been done biblically. And so there's going to be a publicity of it. It's going to go to the head of the house, or it's going to go to a magistrate if this is some sort of crime that has the blows on the back of a fool, right? So something's happening here where there's an exposure. And so what's the point of this verse? How, what does it teach us about how to deal with fools? It shows us the limits of overlooking because we are required to rebuke and are required to chastise in some cases. And a wise man softens himself to rebuke, and as a result, a rebuke is very effective on a wise man. A rebuke is so effective on a wise man that a rebuke to a wise man is more effective than a hundred blows to a fool. Well, if the maximum number of blows that can be given by the rod in a single incident are 40, this guy has had at least three criminal indictments, and he didn't learn his lesson. He was convicted three times and beat three times in public. Didn't learn his lesson. A wise man learns the lesson with a rebuke. How carefully do you heed the rebukes of the word of God and heed the rebukes that your brothers give to you? Now what's the conclusion then of how we need to deal with fools? Our tendency in our age is to not judge, not punish, not give consequences. And we are overrun by fools. Fools fill the White House. Fools fill Capitol Hill. Fools fill the judiciaries of the land. Fools fill the pulpits of the land. Fools have had children and run away. Fools have done all sorts of things in our land to destroy the country. What we have is an epidemic of foolishness. The pandemic that we ought to be concerned about is the pandemic of foolishness. Mm -hmm. And so how should we deal with fools? We should not under-discipline them. Because a rebuke is more effective on a wise man than a hundred blows to a fool, which means that a fool is not very effective by blows. We should also be careful to not over-discipline the wise. If you have godly children who manifest fruits of the Spirit, you don't want to over-discipline them. But guess what? Your children are not as godly as you think. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of children. It's bound up. It's tied in. It's pretty tightly connected to their hearts. Very closely bound to their hearts. They don't start out wise. And the rod drives the foolishness from them. We have an epidemic of fools. 
because there is an absence of discipline. And we don't know how to deal with criminal justice. So it will get worse until it gets better. So how does God deal with the fool? Verse 11, an evil man seeks only rebellion. Hey, do you think that connects to the fact that there's rebukes and blows? Authorities are the ones that typically give rebukes and blows. But an evil man seeks only rebellion, therefore a cruel messenger will be sent against him. So God's going to send the cruel messenger. You know what the cruel messenger is? Providential judgments and ultimately the decree of punishment on the last day. So providential judgment. God is going to bring harm to the rebel. Now, the next thing that comes up, verse 12, another example of how to deal with the fool. Let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Avoid raging fools. The raging fool is a cruel messenger. Raging fools are often used against fools to cause them to have a providential judgment on their head. Hitler and Stalin were raging fools, and they met each other in Eastern Europe. It was awful. Fascism and communism were both weakened dramatically as a result of their raging against each other. You should avoid raging fools. And the raging fool is a cruel messenger and a great danger to all around him. When the fool is in the middle of folly, avoid becoming the target of the fool. In the same way that you would avoid a bear robbed of her cubs, right? Why is this example given? Because everybody knows when a bear is rolling around angry and looks like it's in distress, you don't go pet the thing. But when we see people raging in their foolishness, what do we do sometimes? We get involved. We try to figure out the person's situation. We try to deal with it. Somebody's raging. You don't go at that time. You back away. Unless you're in authority and you have the responsibility of stopping it. So let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. So verse 13. Whoever rewards evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Sending evil for good will bring evil onto yourself and your own household. When you are a raging fool, what you tend to do is you start to punish people who don't deserve it. When you're a raging fool, you take people who have blessed you and you curse them. When you're a raging fool, you indiscriminately punish. That's what we just talked about back in verse 12 that you need to avoid. So how does God deal with that? God deals with that by making it so that evil doesn't depart from the house of the person who does that. If you're a raging fool, that brings curse on yourself. You run around cursing everybody, you will bring curse on yourself. So there's a way where God has structured reality so that he is going to diminish fools. First, even though the fool will not listen to chastisement and rebuke, God sends more intense chastisement and rebuke. And the second part, even though the raging fool harms everybody around them and doesn't discriminate based upon which target should be hit, God will not allow evil to depart from that person's house. So what does that mean? Who does the raging fool hit most? The people in their own household. It brings curse on their own house, which destroys their own prosperity. These things are rebukes, by the way, against the fool. The wise will hear these, and when you hear these rebukes about foolishness, it will be more effective to you to avoid this than a hundred blows on your back. 
Right? These images, these, these word pictures, these, these ideas that are being communicated in Proverbs, if you are wise, this will have a greater effect on you than three indictments, three convictions, followed by public beating. Verse 14. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before quarrel starts. How to deal with a fool. Strife can quickly feed into a vicious cycle, like the eroding effects of the breaking water of a dam. Have you ever seen what happens when water breaks out of a dam? A little spot. Quickly turns into boom. Just shatters out the sides. How are canyons formed? Look what happened with Mount St. Helen and the formation of the canyons there. The running water, fast-moving water, tears through the ground. The Grand Canyon was not formed by millions of years of marginal erosion. When you see the beginning of a quarrel, when quarrels get released, it starts to break out the next piece, boom. And the next piece, boom. And the next piece, boom. And the issue is this releasing and the shattering out and the opening up of the conflict. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. If you're dealing with a foolish fight with a fool, as soon as you realize that that has happened, you stop that. I'm sorry, that was a mistake. Let's, can I, here's a bag of money. That process of how do you end the fight quickly, you do not engage in fruitless fights with fools. Let a man meet a bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. Oh, are you about to make the fool go into his folly? You better stop that. Do not pick foolish fights with the fool. If you see a foolish fight start with a fool, then end it quickly to avoid being the target of the fool. See verse 12. Verse 15, how does God deal with this? He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just. Right? If, you, if you get into a fight with a fool and there's this you know, calling evil good and good evil, God calls that an abomination. And God will bring judgment. So, we have these three types of foolishness and we have instruction on how to deal with them. And then we have, here's how God deals with it. You see foolishness and you think, i got to fix this. Wait, there's somebody wrong on the internet. Right? When you do that, right? if you just pick the fights, if you just go into the fights, then the result is that you're going to get torn up into the fight. And so you have to pick your fights intelligently and calmly And you have to know when to not fight. And we can trust that God deals with fools. When you're in authority, this is not your option. If you're in authority over the person, you don't have this option. You have to deal with it. And that's why it's hard to be in authority. Because when you're in authority, you have to deal with fights with fools. When you're in authority, you have to deal with rebellion. When you're in authority... You have to deal with the angry, self-destructive nature of foolishness. And this is why it's so important to make sure that you do not have fools in your house by training the people in your house. Next part. 17, verse 16. Chapter 17, verse 16. This section is the fool versus the friend. Why is there in the hand of a fool the purchase price of wisdom since he has no heart for it? 
Okay, so we've been told throughout the book of Proverbs to buy wisdom, right? Now imagine somebody is so stupid that they woodenly interpret that to think, I can just exchange money and I will get wisdom. Right? It's like a grotesque and silly image. It's, it, it smacks of simony, right? The idea of, how can I get the gift of the Holy Spirit? Can I just pay the money for it? Could you give me the power to do this thing too, Peter? Or just hand the money. Why is there in the hand of a fool the purchase price of wisdom, since he has no heart for it? You can pay a teacher money, and if you don't care what the teacher has to say, what do you expect to learn? If you don't want to put it into practice, what do you expect to learn? Now, in the context of the rest of this, though, here's the thing. The fool pays the price for wisdom by going through life. You will suffer, whether you're a fool or wise. But the wise will benefit from the blows on the back and from the rebukes. You're going to pay the price either way, but do you have a heart for wisdom? Do you want to learn? So then, here are some things to consider that might save you a great deal of suffering. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. We love to quote that. We love that verse. Everybody loves that verse. We love it. I love it. But the context is really important. A man devoid of understanding shakes hands in a pledge and becomes surety for his friend. These two need to go side by side. A friend loves at all times. A friend is always seeking your good. And a brother is born for adversity. The brotherhood that we have is so that we can help each other with the problems that we face in life. So we can lift each other's burdens and we can go together. But I'll tell you what. There's a big difference between loving your neighbor and standing beside them and helping them in hard times to carry their burdens and taking their duties and burdens for them, and saying, I got this. The first one is good. A friend loves and stands beside and helps in hard times. A stupid person says, I'll take your responsibilities and deal with this for you. That's the idea. That's the context. That's why these things are side by side. This goes to the old adage, teach a man to fish, right? If you give him a fish, you fed him for a day. If you teach him to fish, you fed him for a lifetime. You should teach a man to fish rather than committing to give him a fish when he doesn't have one. This idea of saying, let me help you so that you can then deal with this problem yourself. So, Diaconal ministry and welfare ministry, for example, the state shouldn't be doing. When you just pay people, say, hey, if you're poor, we'll give you money. As opposed to, what does it take to get you on your feet? You help people to be able to deal with things, and you help them to do work. As opposed to, here's just this thing, because you're in need. Now, the first, we have the the friend, then we have the fool, and then we have the deeper fool. He who loves transgression loves strife, and he who exalts his gate seeks destruction. Now, the word gate is not shar, it's not the gate like at a city, it's pith, or katah. That word is talking about the door, it's the house. When you see, like in Deuteronomy 6, the gate, okay, it's Shar, it's the city gate, it's the, it's the public gate. And so, this here, he who exalts his gate seeks destruction. The idea is, if you have a friend, you should love them all the time. You should not raise yourself above them to separate yourself. And, a brother is born for adversity, as opposed to, when a person has a problem, you sit up and judge them. 
If you love transgression, you love strife. You love the brawl. You love violence. And if you exalt yourself, you're seeking your own destruction. You're seeking the destruction of others and of yourself. This idea of separating yourself to not be available to help with problems and to not care for your brother and sitting in judgment rather than seeking to help. So verse 20. He who has a deceitful heart finds no good, and he who has a perverse tongue falls into evil. These are the consequences. If the inner man is twisted, then it will not find good. If the tongue is used to set traps, then the speaker will fall into the traps. The mouth is the overflow of the heart, and the mouth seeks the good of others, or it seeks the harm of others. How do you use your mouth? Do you use your mouth to seek the good of others? Now, we get to the last section, verses 21 to 29. And there's two collections here. This section is about the fool, injustice, and the reserved speech of the wise. And so this teaches us to think about how we're speaking. So the first set of verses, the first five verses, verses 21 through 25, they form a chiasm. He who begets a scoffer does so to his sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. A merry heart does good like medicine. Or, in other words, a merry heart makes medicine even better, does good to the heart itself. But a broken spirit dries the bones. A wicked man accepts a bribe behind the back, to pervert the ways of justice. Wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. So it's obvious how verse 25 and verse 21 relate to each other. Now let's, let's read those together. He who begets a scoffer does so to his sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Okay, so it's obvious how those fit together. And so the idea of how important it is to give wisdom to your children and how the one in authority needs to deal with children. And so we go back to earlier on, children are naturally fools and need to be disciplined. And we need to make sure to not under-discipline, which is the general tendency of our age. And we need to make sure to do right discipline as opposed to discipline without process or else it will breed resentment, and if it's not accompanied with instruction, then it will be ineffective, because the words of explanation need to be given along with the use of the rod. And we have a duty to give due process, to ask, what have you done, you know, and to get evidence when we exercise authority. There's a great warning here of danger and pain, if we don't discipline our children. Now, there, there we go into the inside, and it focuses on wisdom for yourself. Okay, so look at B, verses 22 and 24. A merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. So, if you have joy, it's because you have what you think is good. And if you have what is actually good, wisdom, you can have stable joy. And that will be healing for you, even when you're taking blows. But if your spirit's broken, if you don't have joy, if you don't believe that you have a solution, then your inward man will dry up and die. So much of what we see in terms of the ineffectiveness of Christians around us is them not believing that there is any hope. And they just wither and die. And so, if you want to have this merry heart, right? wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding. If you have understanding, you're going to focus on getting wisdom. It's going to be the apple of your eye. It will be the focus of your vision. It will be the thing you chase after. It will be what you focus on getting. You will disregard whatever and acquire wisdom. That's the thing you're going to do. 
And so getting wisdom is the thing. And wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding. He's focused on it. He's chasing it. He's getting wisdom. But the eyes of the fool are on all the things that are distant. The, the grass is always greener on the other side of the world. There's this getting away from the problem. There's the, the traveling. You know, a lot of people leave a place because they go, I'm not happy here. I want to go to a new place and have a new beginning. I'm sorry, friend. You're going to still have you with you. You'll be just as unhappy there. So what you focus on is getting wisdom. And that will make you better and make where you are better. Getting wisdom results in the overflow into the mouth and to the hands and it constructs around it excellence. Wisdom must be the thing in the sight and it will give joy. And as you have wisdom, you will have increasing hope. And so we get to the middle, the middle of the chiasm. A wicked man accepts a bribe behind the back to pervert the ways of justice. Justice is necessary to prevent having a scoffer as a child. Wisdom is necessary to have joy and to give justice. And you pervert your own understanding and you destroy justice if you accept bribes. And those bribes can be just accepting the pleasures of something else other than your duty and seeking to avoid doing what ought to be done. I remember wasting my youth doing that. I wasted my youth chasing temporary pleasures. How many hours wasted on electronic dominion rather than dominion dominion? Accepting the bribes of short-term fun accepting bribes and turning away from duty. Now, as you get to the end there, verse 26, 27, and 28, also to punish the righteous is not good, nor to strike princes for their uprightness. The theme of justice and wisdom and fools one of the things that fools do is they keep punishing people for doing what's right. If you're around fools, they keep punishing you for doing what's right. They make it hard to do what's right. They punish you for doing what's right. They're mad at you when you do something that's right. Don't punish the righteous. It's not good. Don't strike princes for their uprightness, which also means children, don't punish your parents when they give you the rebukes that you need, don't be unhappy with them. Don't discountenance them. This applies to church officers too. He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips... He's considered perceptive. One of the ways that you administer justice when you're wise is by being careful to not cast judgment too fast. So you don't say things. Everybody wants you to tell them they're right. Nobody likes it when you wait to tell them they're right. One of the fruits of wisdom is the careful selection of words and calm and self-control. The appearance of wisdom and the giving of honor come from the careful selection of speech. By not speaking too hastily, you avoid speaking words of injustice. There is a bribe called approval that you can get very quickly when you tell somebody what they want to hear. There is a far greater payoff when you hold your tongue and wait to deal with things in an orderly manner. And the administration of justice requires, to a large extent, 
a listening and a holding back of speech. And so what we've considered today is the types of fools. We've considered wisdom and the reserved speech of the wise. And we've considered justice. The next chapter will focus on wisdom and wise speech. But this chapter begins with you know, we have the very end of chapter of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17, and it begins with this. And so I want to set this in your mind as all this consideration of wisdom exists and of folly. The silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. A wise servant will rule over a son who causes shame and will share an inheritance among the brothers. The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. An evildoer gives heed to false lips. A liar listens eagerly to a spiteful tongue. He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Children's children are the crown of old men. And the glory of children is their father. We have the beginning of an epic that's being set up here. The epic is this. Here is this man who is greater than the mighty. Here's a man who does more impressive things than taking cities. This is the man who's slow to anger. This is the man who rules his own spirit. And then we have all this discussion of outward sources of frustration. And then we're reminded again of the crown of the old man and the glory that that gives to children. Chapter 17, starting at verse 7, which talks about the fool now presents the giant that man must slay. The man who rules himself and the man who has children, the man who leaves glory behind for his children, that man must deal with fools and must combat them. And in combating fools, there's a great danger and a loss of a lot of pleasure in life. And so the combat with fools, the use of words to do battle with fools, and the knowing when to attack and when to retreat, were given a tactical manual in chapter 17 to know the rules of engagement for victory with fools. When do you avoid them? When do you engage? What do you do? How can you rely upon God to aid you in that? What will happen to the fools if you leave them to themselves and rely upon God to deal with them? This is like the description of Goliath before David fights him. Chapter 18 explains how David kills Goliath. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help to keep us from folly, that you would cause us to hear the rebukes of your word, and that you would keep us far from this folly, that you would cause us like the wise, to be soft to your rebukes, that this would have more effect on us than a hundred blows to our backs. Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom and that you would cause us to learn to speak the words of wisdom. We ask that you would give to us the glorious crown of silver hair, that we would have old age and be found walking in righteousness. We ask that you would give to us children and children's children, that you would cause them to be wise, that you would help us to not have children in folly, And Father, we ask that you would help us to see the children who are in folly to be driven away from folly, that foolishness would be driven out of their hearts by discipline. And we ask that you would cause good order to appear in our homes, that you would cause us to have good order in our own hearts, that you would help us to have good order in our own speech, that we would govern ourselves well, that we would be calm, and that we would have the glorious crown, that you would cause us to appear wise, that we would restrain our lips wisely, and that you would give to us honor and dominion. We ask that you would give us strength to know what to say when, and to speak the words that are necessary 
to deal with our duties. And that when we are in authority over people, that we would know how to rebuke and to do so wisely. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.